As uh, most of you know, I authored a book called How to Study Your Bible and Enjoy It, and I co-authored another book with Barnabas the Bear uh, for kids called Barnabas Studies the Bible, and I thought you'd like to meet the character who gets to meet some of your kids every week. Barnabas, come on out. Barnabas, how are you, buddy? Good, Skip. How are you? Well, good. Tell us, uh, tell us about the kids and what you do over there. Oh, well, I minister to your boys and girls. Uh, let me interpret that. He said, I minister to your boys and girls. <laughs> well, we love you, Barnabas, and I'm sure you make everybody feel at home. I love you too, Skip. <laughs> and I love all of you. Okay, thanks, Barnabas. You're, you're toast now, buddy. You're out of here. Bye. <laughs> and Barnabas is going to get a new friend soon, a little lamb that he's going to be walking around with. Uh, it just makes the kids feel at home. They come here, especially if they're visitors, and they have a big fuzzy bear that hugs them and lets them know God loves them and takes them to their classroom, and so they have a lot of fun with that. Turn to Psalm 11 this morning. When you look around at your society, your world, would you say that it's solid and secure? Can you breathe a sigh of relief and say, everything's just fine, hunky-dory, no problems? Well, I don't think so, especially after having read the book of Revelation, we see that God has to make a new heaven and a new earth. Something is wrong with the first one if he has to make a new one and start all over again. As we enter Psalm 11, we get the sentiment of King David that there's something wrong with his world, and what should he do about it? Before we read it, however, I want to read to you an excerpt from um, Alice in Wonderland. I know it's probably not a deep theological work, but uh, Alice is having a conversation with the Mad Hatter from Wonderland. And Alice says, where I come from, People study what they're not good at in order to be able to do what they are good at. The Mad Hatter says, We only go around in circles in Wonderland, but we always end up where we started. Alice says, Well, where I come from, grown-ups tell us to find out what we did wrong and never do it again. The Mad Hatter says, Well, that's odd. It seems to me that in order to find out something, you have to study it. And when you study it, you should become better at it. Why would you want to become better at something and then never do it again? Alice says, Well, nobody ever tells us to study the right things we do. We're only supposed to learn from the wrong things. But we are permitted to study the right things that other people do, and sometimes we're even told to copy them. The Mad Hatter says, That's cheating. Alice says, Well, you're quite right, Mr. Hatter. I do live in a topsy-turvy world. It seems like I have to do something wrong first in order to learn from what not to do. And then by not doing what I'm supposed to do, perhaps I'll be right. But I'd rather be right the first time, wouldn't you? We all would rather be right the first time. But it is good to look back to find out what we've done wrong so that we don't have to repeat it. The problem is, if you do that through history... 
You find that in every era of history, we make mistakes. In fact, a lot of times the same mistakes. We find that often history is cyclic. We make the same dumb errors from one generation to the next. Now, I know we have talked in, in our schools about the age of enlightenment, the time when man comes of age and becomes smarter and more refined and better off. And we take the age of enlightenment and we say it's so much better than the dark ages. I found that every age of man is dark. That we make the same errors because the heart of man is an error. The foundations of our society built upon man is weak. And whenever you start with a weak foundation, no matter what you put on top, will eventually fall. Maybe you read about the cranky old grandfather that went to visit his family. And one afternoon while he was asleep, his grandson decided to play a trick on Grandpa and smeared some Lindberger cheese on Grandpa's mustache while he was sleeping. Well, when Grandpa woke up, he went, This room stinks. Walked into the next room and said, This whole house stinks. Finally went outside and took another big woof and said, The world stinks. Well, of course the world stinks, Grandpa. At the foundation of your nose is a bunch of Lindberger cheese. That's all that you know. That's all that you smell. It's undergirded by that whole olfactory sense. Alice said to the Mad Hatter, We live in a topsy-turvy world. It's upside down. It's not quite right. The question is, in such a topsy-turvy world, how do we build? What kind of foundations do we have? That's really what David is getting at in this psalm. Let's look at it together. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Simply what David does in this little psalm, this little utterance, is to compare the foundations of man with the eternal foundations of God. What do I do in a topsy-turvy world? The crumbling foundations of society over against the certain foundations of sovereignty. Now, notice in verse 1, there seems to be a conflict, even in David's own mind. In the Lord, I put my trust. It's a great, great statement. However, he follows it with, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. I think if I were to paraphrase this in David's thoughts, we would say, Lord... I trust you, but there's this little voice. At the same time, I trust you, but this little voice says, flee. Things have gotten so bad, 
leave, move, go somewhere else. Now, perhaps his friends gave him this advice. They said, you have enemies around you. They're trying to kill you. It's time for you to leave to protect yourself. Or perhaps his enemies gave him this advice uh, saying, you know, we want to get rid of David. Let's just tell him to leave. Or perhaps from his own thoughts, his own mind, his own conscience. In looking around at what he saw in his culture, in his society, in his city, he thought, I want to flee like a bird to the mountain. I have this conflict going on inside my heart. Why? Well, if you back up and look at David's early life, there were three distinct sections in David's earlier years. The first section was the country, the second, the court, and the third, the caves. He grew up in the country as a shepherd. He moves to the court of King Saul, and then he's chased by King Saul, and he has to live in caves down in En Gedi and Adullam. After David was a shepherd for a while, King Saul asked that King David, he wasn't king yet, but he was just a shepherd boy, come into his court, and he became Saul's personal stereo. Saul was a moody kind of a character, had fits of depression, he was up, he was down, and so David would play skillfully on his harp and soothe the nerves of the king. One day the Philistines attacked Israel, and their big gun was Goliath. And Goliath was so big and so powerful and so intimidating that nobody in Israel wanted to take him on except little David. This little shepherd kid comes with such faith And he says, who is this big target? Who is this oversized midget? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the name of God? I'll take him on. And they said, David, you can't take him on. You can't even fit into the armor. It's like putting an extra large shirt on a toddler. It doesn't fit. You're just tiny. He says, no big deal. I'll come against him in the name of God. So he goes out to Goliath. You know the rest of the story. Uh, Goliath gets wiped out. David instantly becomes a national hero. His popularity is on the rise. Paul, uh, Saul's already waning popularity is on the decline. As soon as David gets the victory, Saul feels jealous. The inevitable will happen. People will look to David now and not to me. And he was a very insecure leader. To make it worse, a new song develops in Israel. It hits the top 40 charts. Everybody sings it, but what really makes Saul angry is all the women sing it. And as David comes back, the song goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. Instantly, Saul is filled with jealousy. And the Bible says he eyes David with jealousy from that day forward. In fact, one day he even plays darts with David. Of course, David was the dart board, and Saul throws his javelin at David, and David has to duck and escape. It is thought that during this period of David's life that he wrote Psalm 11, when he was being chased by his own future father-in-law, the king of Israel. It was a time of national corruption. It was a time when the highest executive office in the country was filled with corruption. Terrorism reigned, fear gripped the nation, and David is tempted either by friends or by enemies or by his own conscience to flee, to go somewhere else. Perhaps he thought, you know what? It's just getting so bad around here, I'm going to find some little country village 
and raise my kids and get my things going there. I'm getting out of this corruption. Sort of like what Randy Stonehill said in one of his songs a few years back. Stop the world. I want to get off. This is just too much. David was then confronted with an issue that faces everyone in a crisis. When we look around and the things we treasure, the things we value, are topsy-turvy. The crisis we are faced with is, where will my foundations be? What will I do now? Where will I rest? What will I build my life upon? What do I do next? Ann Landers, the columnist, gets about 10,000 or so letters every month from people who just want to dump their burdens on her. How would you like to get that mail? Problem after problem after problem you read. She said the predominant feature in the mail that I get is fear. People are afraid of what next? What will happen to their future? I was reading part of a survey this week that said the majority of adults approach their future with doubts and fears. Instead of having an attitude of invincibility, instead they feel more vulnerable. Just slightly more than half, that is 52%, feel optimistic about the future compared to 69% last year. That's a rapid decline of people who are filled with doubt, fear, and anxiety about their own world. If you look at verse 3 with me, we have the heart of the issue, the real condition that David is questioning. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Can you hear some despair in those words? I trust you. I feel like leaving, however. Why? Well, if the foundations are destroyed, what do the righteous do? The word foundation is a Hebrew word that literally means the settled order of political and moral support. Here's another translation. When the pillars of state are fallen down, that is the moral fabric, what do the righteous do? Another translation puts it this way. The bottom has dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. See, what David does is he likens his country, his society, to a building settled upon foundations. The things that the country is built upon, moral fabric, laws, principles of law and order, values. But what do we do when those laws, when those foundations are eroded? What do we do when the morality of the country is undermined by Hollywood? By Washington. What do we do when the tide of secularism rises? What do we do when the term family values becomes a dirty word? In other words, when the very principles meant to protect good people and righteous people are themselves eroded, what do you do next? It's a good question. It's a crucial question. There was a striking example of this in David's own life. Things get worse. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, we are told that Jonathan, Saul's son, tells David that his dad wants to kill David. So David goes to a town called Nob, N-O-B. While he's there, he talks to the priest, Ahimelech, and Ahimelech helps him out with some water and bread, sends him on his way. King Saul is so paranoid that when he hears about Ahimelech the priest helping David, he says, Ahimelech is a traitor, And he commands that he be killed, the priest. 
Well, even Saul's own men knew that Saul was a nut and said, we're not going to touch God's anointed and kill the priest, Ahimelech. But then an unsavory character by the name of Doeg steps forward and he says, I don't have a moral problem. I have no conscious thought about this. Takes out a sword and kills Ahimelech, kills 85 other priests, goes back to the city of Nob and kills women, children, men, animals, slaughters the whole town, massacres them. It was a dark, dark period in history. And it was all pushed by the king of Israel, Saul himself. So if the guy who himself is to enforce law, order, morality is breaking it, and if the very moral fabric of my culture and society is that far gone, what do good people, what do righteous people do? Now this sounds to me amazingly contemporary according to the index of leading cultural indicators from the 1960s to the 1990s. Now now just think about that time period. What happened in the 60s? It was the love revolution, dude. Love, peace. Let's change society. Oh, we've changed it all right. The hippies have now come of age and have had their own kids and grandkids. And what happened from the 60s to the 90s? Listen up. There's been a 560% increase in violent crime, a 400% increase in illegitimate births, a quadrupling of divorces, a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, and over 200% increase in teenage suicide rates. Why? Because law has become arbitrary. No longer is there a fixed right, wrong, law and order. That's not law and order. It's I decide what is right for myself. We have become the judge. Listen to one lawyer who was interviewed from Washington, D.C. She says, quote, To be perfectly honest, some laws seem to apply to me, some I disregard. Some tenets of the church add up, others are absurd or even insulting. I don't need the Pope, the press, or some lowly cop to tell me how to live my life. The foundations are eroding. The foundations are destroyed. If you have a coin or a dollar bill or a five or ten dollar bill in your pocket or purse, pull it out and look at it for just a moment. Don't worry, I'm not going to take an offering. (laughs) Just look at it for just a second. I want you to see the words that are written on the currency that is passed around through your hands and others. If you have a bill, the words are found on the back. If you have a coin, they're somewhere on the front. Look at those three words. In Four words. In God we trust. In God. What a wonderful motto for currency to represent a nation. In God we trust. Is that true as a nation? It is a mockery. We don't trust God. We have left God. Maybe at one time this country did trust God. We have so misinterpreted and revised the history of this nation that once trusted in God, we don't trust Him anymore. We've got some new gods on the horizon, actually in place. Who are the new gods? We are. We deify man and we throw God out. And we say this history was not built on godly principles and all the revisionists who touch our history books tell us that. 
Listen to what the Mayflower Compact said. In 1620, they wrote, quote, In the name of God, amen, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, we do solemnly and mutually combine ourselves together. Those are the foundations. In 1643, the Constitution of the New England Confederation, quote, whereas we have all come into these parts of America with one and the same end, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. Those are the foundations. The Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal. They were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's the foundation of our country. The foundations of our country, when they were at the foundations, so impressed other nations. For instance, in the early 19th century, the French government sent a representative to these United States to find out how does it work. Then they called us the great experiment in democracy. And so the representative, Alexis de Tocqueville, was sent from France to America to look at this great experiment in democracy. Why does it work? What's their secret? Listen to part of what he noticed. I do not know whether all Americans have a sincere faith in their religion, for who can know the human heart? But I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable for the maintenance of republican institutions. This opinion is not peculiar to a class of citizens or to a party, but it belongs to the whole rank of society. America, said de Tocqueville, is the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest power over men's souls, and nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is to man since the country where it now has the widest sway is both the most enlightened and the freest. What has happened? What has happened? The foundations are destroyed. When the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Don't rest on that foundation. That's what the righteous should do. The righteous need a solid foundation, an everlasting foundation, a certain foundation in time of crumbling foundations. That's what David does. He now, noticing the dilemma, noticing the condition, turns his thoughts and sets God as the eternal foundation. I trust God. I'm tempted to flee. The foundations are destroyed, but my hope is in him. Something solid. Folks, David was not a humanist. He did not say, I believe in man. I am the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my fate. We're going to make it better. Nor was David an escapist. He didn't say, I am going to flee as a bird to the mountains. I am going to just leave and find some little colony somewhere, and that's where I'll live. David got involved in his society, and he even got involved politically. He was the king, eventually. I would call that involvement. But first and foremost, David was a theist. I trust God. He's my stopping point. He's where I camp. He's where I build. Look at verse 4. David notices in all of this where God sits. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Think of the vantage point God has. Just in terms of picturing where God sits in the arena, he's on the top row. He's on the throne. He's still in control. He's still in charge is the idea. How often do you forget that God's still on the throne? 
How often do you forget when some horrible news breaks through the headlines, some catastrophe in your own life? You forget, yeah, but God is still on the throne. There was a period in Israel's history. Isaiah mentioned it. Everything seemed to be going well, but at the same time, the sins of the people were just increasing, becoming more rampant. Assyria was coming in from the north, moving down south toward Jerusalem, and people were getting a little bit worried. Hmm, I don't know, it doesn't look good. But at least they thought, we have a good king, Uzziah. A godly king. He loves God. He brought the law back to the country. He, he brought in spiritual reform. Listen, King Uzziah was a 16-year-old teenager when he began to reign. You say, well, that's too young to be king. But he stuck with it for 52 years. That's like having a Christian president your whole life. And everybody knew he was godly. And I think the mentality was, well, I know there's sin in the country, but as long as we have a Christian president, we'll be all right. And so people went their merry way just thinking that way. Well, he died. And when he died, the country was in disarray. People, including Isaiah, must have thought, oh, no, the godly king, the guy who held the country together, now he's gone, leadership is corrupt, we're sunk. It was then that Isaiah had a vision of God. Listen to how he puts it. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's thinking, oh, who's going to lead the country? Who's going to sit on the throne? God is on the throne, was the vision to it. God is still in charge. He hasn't taken a vacation. Is evil abounding? Yep. Is the devil rampant and deceiving? Yes. But is God ultimately still on the throne? Yes. Folks, if you forget that, you're going to eventually throw your arms up and quit. You'll just fizzle out. If you don't realize that, that is why worship, that's why corporate worship, that's why coming to church, having Bible study, having kinship is so vital to your faith. Because you come burdened. You come smelling Limburger cheese. The world stinks. And then you come together with God's people. You hear God's words. You sing worship songs. And your little narrow, stinky perspective gets broadened out. And you say, yeah, God is still on the throne. That's where God sits. What does God see? His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Another translation, he watches everything closely, examining everyone on earth. Now notice the reference here to God's eyelids. When was the last time you even thought about God's eyelids? What does that mean? Why did David insert that idea? Well, the the idea is that God examines something very, very closely. When a person checks something out in a cursory sense, he just looks at it and goes away. But when he really examines it, he'll furrow the brow and he'll kind of squint with the eyelids. He's really getting a comprehensive, studied look. That's David's idea. He's saying, God is not indifferent to my situation. He knows my attackers. He knows my condition. He sees it all. He is omniscient. And so here I come with Lindberger cheese. It's stinky. 
the world's bad, my condition's bad. Or we're like the shop owner who always complained about his competitor's dirty windows across the street. Yeah, I wish he'd wash his windows. Well, one day the guy complaining washed his own windows. And he looked out and he said, It's amazing how clean my neighbor's windows are. It must be that when I wash mine that he got jealous and washed his too. You see, all he could see was out through his own dirty spotted glass. But we realize God sees behind the scenes. He sees everything. He knows every motivation of every person. It's a very, very broad perspective. So God sits in the heavens. God sees everything. And before we move on, I've got to say that this is precisely where a lot of people have problems with God. They say, okay, if God is sitting on the throne and in charge, He is omnipresent, He is omniscient. If God knows everything, why didn't He do something about all the junk going on in the world? If God is that knowledgeable... A, there is no God because God would have done something, or B, He's doing a very poor job of being God. It's like what one University of North Carolina professor said to a Christian. The Christian spokesman came to his college and the university professor stood up and said, where was God in Ethiopia when the starvation hit and the famine hit and children cried out in pain with no food? Where was your God then? And the man rebutted, saying, how can you blame God for Ethiopia when the best-selling books in America are on dieting? We've got enough food. It's people who hoard it. Or when the food goes over through agencies, the gorillas in those countries steal it for themselves. Well, the next question would be, then, why does God allow evil people? Folks, listen to the answer. It's very basic. It's because God gives people free choice. And that is so important. God gives people free choice to love, to not love, to obey, to disobey. And that's a freedom of choice. Evil cannot be destroyed without destroying freedom. If you destroy freedom, which is the only way to get rid of all evil, if you destroy freedom, that in and of itself would be evil. Because if love is the highest good... To remove the choice and the possibility of love would not be loving. It would be evil itself. And so God allows the choice and the repercussions of the choice. And I think rather than complaining that there's evil, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you accept God's solution to the evil? What's God's solution? Accept Christ and let him thrust you out into a hurting world to alleviate the pain, the hunger, the starvation in the name of Jesus. Instead of saying, there's evil in the world. That's what God did. God didn't look down and say, look at that earth. So sinful. He did something about it. He sent his son down there to die for our sins. He left the comforts of heaven, if you will. And he did something about the problem. In verse 5, David talks about the sifting of men, the good, the evil, the righteous, the unrighteous. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What a difference. Pain in the life of a believer versus pain and adversity in the life of a wicked person. You see, a believer realizes that God allows this to test me. 
to approve me, to make me more valuable. That's the idea here. The word is to examine something carefully, to put it under the test that it might be more valuable afterwards. You you know what you have as a believer? You have the ability to say when anything bad comes your way, that this came to me, but it first had to go through God's hands for His approval. You say, well, why would God allow anything bad to happen to me? Because God wants to hone you, refine you. He wants to polish you. One person said, adversity is the diamond dust of heaven by which God polishes his gems. Beethoven composed his greatest works after becoming deaf. Christopher Columbus could have turned back. Nobody would have blamed him. The adversity was so great. Nobody would have blamed him, but nobody would have remembered him either. Martin Luther sat and translated the Bible while he was being confined in the castle of Wartburg. John Bunyan, in a Bedford jail, translated Pilgrim's Progress. That adversity honed. God uses adversity in the life of a believer like a grindstone to to knock off the rough edges. Do you got any, any of those rough edges in your life? Why are we so surprised then when adversity comes? As if, I don't need refining. I don't need honing. I'm perfect. I'm polished. The fact that they come shows you that you're not and shows you that God's committed to getting you polished. This is what uh, Peter said. These trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. That's why one person said, it's a greater thing to pray for pain's conversion rather than pain's removal. Because the Lord tests the righteous. However, at the same time, adversity that tests the righteous is a preview of coming attractions for the unrighteous. This is what David means by that when he says, but the wicked one who loves violence, his soul hates Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, burning wind shall be the portion of his cup. I get the idea when I read this that David didn't have a problem with eternal punishment. In his psalm, he says, the pain that is experienced now is a preview of the coming pain of judgment that will come upon all the wicked. Now I know there are people who say, The whole idea of a loving God judging the earth is so medieval, it's so harsh, it's so wrong. Really? Can I ask you, when you read the newspaper about rapes and abductions and child molestations, does that ever bother you? If it doesn't, something's wrong with you. It should create an emotional upheaval. You should get upset when you read those headlines. Think how God feels reading every headline of every newspaper of every city in every part of the world every day since time began. For God not to do something about that in the end, I could never trust a God like that. My question is never, how could a God of love judge? My question is, how could a God of love not judge? Imagine how wrong it would be, how ridiculous it would sound for God to say something like, in judgment time, oh, Adolf, Hitler, listen, You were a product of your environment. Oh, you killed a few people at Buchenwald, Dachau, Auschwitz. However, we all fail. We all have problems. And you were a product of your environment. Come on in. You'd say, that is not a loving God. 
And so David mentions this judgment for the unbeliever in the very end. And speaking of the very end, the payoff for the righteous is in verse 7. And that's why we're sustained. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. A better translation would be, the upright will see his face. One day, Christian, you who are in the midst of a topsy-turvy world, a crumbling foundations, you're going to look into the face of your Savior. You're going to see God in all of his glory. It's going to be worth it. You're going to see him. It's the aspiration of every child of God. It's the destination of every child of God. And it's the time when you can breathe a sigh of relief. You'll be satisfied. A friend of mine is a missionary doctor, travels across the world. He said when he was overseas, he was rummaging through a cemetery on a day off. And he noticed a tombstone of an American missionary, I believe, had his name, date of birth, death, and one word written on the tombstone. Satisfied. Satisfied on the tombstone. The reference, the biblical reference, was Psalm 16 or 17, verse 15. Let me read it to you. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now I'm satisfied seeing the face of God. The payoff has come. The one that I rested for my foundation in, I'm seeing. Can you relate to David? Do the foundations of your culture look a little bit like the foundations of David's culture? Corrupt, crumbling, destroyed. You know, it's interesting when archaeologists dig over in the Middle East, even in cities in Israel, you know what they find in their archaeological digs? Idolatry, corruption. They find these statues of Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech and all of these other gods and goddesses where Israel turned from the living God to worship false gods. I wonder if archaeologists dig us up in many years from now what they'll find. Paul Harvey, the commentator, asked that question. He says, suppose one day our civilization were destroyed and our cities laid waste. Suppose in 20,000 years an archaeologist from another time were poking around in the ruins of your city. If he should dig up just one penny, he would know much about us. The coin, a blend of metals, would tell him that we were miners and understood the science of metallurgy. By the perfect circle shape of the coin, he would deduce that we understood geometry. The wheat on the back of the penny would tell him that we were a great agricultural society, that our fine crops were a major source of our wealth. The date on the face of the coin would show him that we understood arithmetic, that we had a calendar. The portrait of Lincoln would mark us as artists with an advanced culture. The words United States would let him know that we were a federated group of local communities bound together with a strong central government. The phrase e pluribus unum would tell him that we were scholars who knew foreign languages. The word liberty on the face of the penny would let the archaeologists know that our country sought to guarantee freedom for every man. And finally, the phrase in God we trust would confirm that we had a moral law. It would let him know that we had a strong and mighty we were had grown strong and mighty with the leading of God and then Considering the penny, he would have to wonder, why did that civilization go astray? So what do you do in such times? What do you as a child of God, a man, a woman, a Christian, follower of Christ, do in times when your culture 
has such corroding foundations? Well, one of your responses could be isolation. Like David was tempted. I'm going to flee as a bird to the mountains. And there was a time in church history when people thought, the world is so stinky, I'm going to move to a monastery. It's the only solution. There is a modern mentality, I fear, that says, let's flee as a bird to my compound. Let me store up weapons and food and the government's out to get us and we better hide and better move away from them. Or, you know what? What we need is a Christian village. Let's get a bunch of people together and all build our homes, Christians, all together. And wouldn't it be great to just have Christian bankers and Christian businessmen and work with Christians and not pagans? Let me tell you from someone firsthand, it's not all that it's cracked up to be working around Christians. They're great, but you know what? We have problems too. And that's not God's solution. Escapism. God wants His work on display. God's handiwork. A second response is not isolation. For some, it's desensitization. They hear so much junk, so many headlines, so much corruption, they become aloof, detached. Been there, done that, heard that, next station, click, click, click. We've just seen so much. We become, ah, who cares? This kind of response is usually accompanied with a very low level of spirituality, a lukewarm condition where one has lost the passion for souls to be one into the kingdom. And and all they think about is personal comfort. The third, the best, the biblical response is not isolation, not desensitization, it's permeation. Be sent out as salt and light into the world. Here's my point. If the foundations of our culture, our society, our world are that bad, and if your personal foundations are that good, that solid, that eternal, then go tell them how to build. You're looking at a world whose lives are broken. You're solid and stable on God's solid rock. Go teach them how to build. By the way, let me close with just telling you how to build if you don't know already. Jesus said there was a man who built his house on the sand and a man who built his house on a rock foundation. And when the storms of life came and the rains flooded, the house that was not built on the foundations went away. But the man who had his life built upon solid foundations stood the test of time. So is everyone, said Jesus, who hears my words and obeys them. And so over here with the man who built on the sand is the man who hears my words but doesn't obey them. That's a weak foundation. This is a solid foundation. You've got the answer. Let it out. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a society where the righteous are not rewarded and where the wicked often go unpunished, we often wonder, what do we do? What we do is we stay grounded with solid footing on the only eternal foundation, the living God. Lord, I pray that we will not be isolationists, escapists, just trying to get others who are evil away, but try to influence others around us and teach them how to build their lives. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Help us exude that 
and tell others about it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.